the ruin of Satan, and the reign of Jesus Christ. Where did the devil come from? And it's not found in your family tree. Um, Satan was a created being, an angel. He was called the anointed cherub, which seems to be he was in a category uniquely his own. According to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, he worked in the throne room of God, and he called him the anointed cherub that covered the throne. And the idea seems to be he acted as a bodyguard or an intermediary of other spirit beings coming to see God. Kind of, he was the one in charge in throne room conduct and who gets in, can talk to God. So he's seen originally there. It's described as a rock garden and majestic. But uh, according to Isaiah, Satan was an egomaniac. And he said five times in Isaiah 14, I will ascend above I will place my throne above the throne of God. I will exalt myself. I will let God know he's not ultimately in charge. I will get above God. And God said, you will not go up, but you will be cast down. And thus begin the history of Satan's fivefold demise. And when you trace him throughout the Bible, this is the abodes of Satan. He starts up here in the throne room of God. The next time we see him, he's in Eden in the form of the serpent and tempting our first parents, Adam and Eve. So from there down to here, you get to Ephesians 6. He's now running a kingdom in the air. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that inhabit the atmospheric air. So it seems to be where he operates. In Revelation 12, another demise. He wants to kill Israel. He wants to destroy the nation and the people that Messiah comes to us. And he goes, is cast to the earth, the accuser of the brethren, and he chases Israel to extinguish them off the face of the earth. He doesn't succeed because God could hide you even from the devil. And he protects and rescues fleeing Israel. Then we come to this chapter, and we find that a great angel comes down, and he binds Satan with this chain, and cast him into the abyss. This term abyss is used about six times in Revelation. Think of it, this is uh, translated the bottomless pit, which is hard for us to comprehend. Think of a miner's shaft that has no bottom. And in the days of Noah, there were spirit beings that came down and cohabited with women, tried to intercept Messiah coming to the world. Some scholars believe the angels were trying to break up the genetic line so that you could never have a physical descendant that could ever be Messiah. 
And God said for this, 2 Peter 2 and Jude, for this sin, I'm going to chain you in the abyss. And so there's been millions of demons out of commission for years because of what they did in the days of Noah. An outrageous sin and offense against God. But ultimately, you see here, he is cast into the lake of fire. And who does he meet up with but with the false prophet and the Antichrist? And imagine them saying, you're the one that energized us to rebel against Christ. You're the one that energized us to talk us into claiming we were God, and now we're stuck with you forever in eternity. Just like all the children of Satan who die in this life without Christ. To be stuck with the murderer of your soul for eternity, I can imagine nothing worse. And an amazing thing happens. He is bound for this thousand years. And when you release him, he's still a criminal. It's kind of what we do. We incarcerate a guy just saw where Brinkley's being released. Been in jail 35 years, tried to kill Reagan. It was in the paper today. They've released Brinkley. He's 61 years old now. And their statement, the probation department said, he's now safe for society. Is he? Is he not? I don't know. We do this with a lot of criminals. Some are in prison because they smoked an ounce of coke. Well, I hate to give them color TV for three years and free meals just for an ounce. That's a little overdue. That's a little too much. I, I, I smoked a, a weed, and now I'm serving time. Oh, my lands. Half the legislators in California have smoked something. Now, don't put this on KRON tonight. But, I mean, the whole culture has grown up with drugs. So we've got a lot of people in prison that are draining us. But have they changed? Satan never changes. And it says, at the end of the thousand years, he's unleashed for a little while. And when he's unleashed, he goes out and has the power to deceive the nations once again. According to Isaiah, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, God will allow every person live to be at least 100 years of age. Everybody gets to live to be. He said, they will die at 100 years of age and be considered an infant. And only unbelievers will die physically. All believers in the millennium never die. Never die. But physical believers go in the millennium and they have children. And many of their children will never believe in Christ. And so at the end there, let's say a man is born in uh, 950 A.D. in the millennium. He's 50 years old. Satan's released. And he goes out and he says, let's go up against the city of Jerusalem and all the saints there and let's overthrow the reign of Christ, insane, yes. And he gets a following, and they go up, and he calls it Gog and Magog again, just like Ezekiel's battle, a different battle 
in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 38, 39. The armies of the north come down. Here, Satan is loose. He goes about, deceives the nations. Once again, they lead a final attack against the Son of God reigning from Jerusalem. And God's had enough. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes those armies, and God says, enough is enough. I can never change your character by locking you up. I can't keep you in prison long enough to change your hate for me and your ability to deceive people. And so now I'm going to cast you into the lake of fire forever. And that's the end of the career of Satan, and we will never hear from him again. Thank God. Let me say something before we go any further. This happens to be one of the most debated passages in all the Bible. And you know what's debated about it? Is it a thousand years? Let me give you some theology. Listen to this profound line. When you read the Bible, hear me now. When you read the Bible, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Is that too heavy? When the plain sense makes sense, don't seek any other sense. We interpret the Bible, even Revelation, literally. And by literal, that means it's grammar, uh, it's context, what they would have thought it meant, the original audience, that's historical. What would the readers in 100 AD think this meant? We got three views of this millennium. One is called post-millennial. Christ will come at the end of the millennium, which is indefinite, not specific. And uh, such a theologian as Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist. You can be saved and be wrong about this chapter. Many are. They just It's confusing. But Edwards, they taught this. The church is conquering the nations. The church is succeeding. The church will conquer the world, and at the end of this conquest, Christ will come. And during this time is the millennium, when the church is triumphant over all the nations. And Satan is bound. The all-millennial view, how many of you took Latin? Latin. How many of you took Greek? Did you take Greek? Okay. When you put an A, an alpha primitive, in front of a word, it's like the Latin ignorance. Or nor, the word is for knowledge, gnosis, but when you ig it, it's, you don't have gnosis. You, you made it negative. All millennial, there simply is no literal millennium. They say it's symbolic of the church age. They would say Christ is now reigning from heaven. He is king, reigning from heaven. And Satan has been bound. And they would interpret that the cross work of Christ bound Satan. And so in figure, in symbol, he's bound during this age. And it's the whole church period. And we, he's already reigning. And uh, basically, that, I think that's a fair representation. And that this is a symbolic book 
with symbolic language. I'm of neither of those views. I'm known as a premillennialist, and I'm going to give you six reasons why I am. A premillennialist says this, that it's literal, that Christ will reign a thousand years. He will come at the end of the tribulation, begin to reign thousand years, and at the end of that time, he'll judge the unsaved, sentence them, begin eternity. Straightforward. Here's the reason we think it's, it's the best view. First of all, the promises of God in the Old Testament demanded. God promised Abraham he'd have a land, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. And he bound it with a covenant in 22, on top of an oath. He said, you have a land, you'll have a great name, you'll have a people. He goes down to Deuteronomy 30 on Palestinian covenant. You'll have the land that I promised you, the boundaries I gave you. You're going to have land, Israel. David, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, 1 Chronicles 17. David, you're going to have a son set on your throne that will be eternal. It's not Solomon, because Solomon's going to blow it. And the Davidic dynasty is going to be cut down and seem to be evaporated for 2,000 years. Show me where a Davidic king is in Jerusalem today. But you will have a son, and he will have an eternal kingdom. The thing that makes it eternal is who the king is, Christ the eternal one. I promise you that, David. Jeremiah 31 I tell you, Israel, I'm going to take out your heart of stone someday, and I'm going to regenerate you as a nation. Every Jew on the earth will be saved at one time by the sovereignty of God that will move in, and in a day, Israel shall be saved. Now, hear me. You're not theologian, so you just say, he's on a tirade. Understand me. Who do you think we are to undo what God promised before we got here. There is a theology that says the church replaces Israel. God's done with Israel. And you know why? They've backslid, they've sinned, they've rejected him. It's over. I made an offer, it's off the table. Now church, the church replaces Israel. Well, for us people, who believe that God saves people, we even say, when you blow it, he won't cancel your salvation. And to quote that great theologian, Bobby Dylan, and when you're going to wake up, now you got to get the line, God don't make promises he don't keep. You didn't get it. You're all worried about the don'ts. He sold a million copies, so he didn't have to have good grammar. God don't make, okay, doesn't make promises that he cannot keep. David, 
I would give it to you, but the church is going to replace this covenant. You remember in Luke 135 when he's telling Mary she's going to have a son, and it says, and he shall sit upon the throne of his father David. Now I want to ask you, where has the throne of David ever been set on by the son? Never. It's never happened. Heaven, David never sat on a throne in heaven. This throne is going to be on the earth in Jerusalem. So don't take away Israel's promises. We don't have that right. The church has not replaced Israel. Two, the numbers in Revelation are not symbolic. They're real. When he says there's going to be 144,000 Jews, guess what? He meant that. God knows how to count. And in the book of Revelation, when he uses numbers, they're always literal. 1,260 days shall be the tribulation period in the second half. 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Daniel's 70th week. Daniel 9, 24 to 27. It means seven years, and the Jewish calendar is 360 days. So 1,260 days is three and a half years. He means it literally in prophecy. It's not symbolic. It is literal. Thirdly, the resurrection that takes place here is not the new birth, but it's physical resurrection. Many in the all-male camp make this a new birth. Fourth, the earliest view of the church for the first three centuries was premillennial. Irenaeus, Pappas, all kinds of uh, church fathers. By the fourth century, a guy by the name of Augustine, a Catholic monk up in Alexandria, Hippo, Africa, in the north, he said, it's spiritual, it's symbolic, it's not real. And ever since then, the Catholic Church, along with the Reformers, who many of them grew up in the Catholic Church, said, this is all symbolic. It's not talking about a literal kingdom. And so we've been buying in the air ever since. Satan will be literally bound. Now, some of these theologians, post-mill, all-mill, they keep telling us he is bound. He's not bound at my house. And I'm not talking about my wife. He's never been bound in my Christian life. He's tempted me a thousand times. Bad thinking. Have you ever been tempted to lie? Who's the father of all lies? When did he get bound? What, what does Peter say Watch out, the devil is loose like a roaring lion and is seeking someone to devour. It sounds to me like he's still Roman. He's still free. Satan is not bound. But that's if you symbolize it, oh, he's symbolically bound. No, this will be literally bound in the abyss. And finally, it's the most natural reading. He says thousand, thousand, six times. God speaks, he doesn't stutter. No, no. He, he said thousand, thousand. So I'm making a point because uh, I, 
I think probably in the church universal, I would hold the maybe minority view because I take the Bible literally, even prophecy. How did Christ come the first time, symbolically or literally? Did he ride on a real donkey? Did they really sell his garments? Did they really pierce his hand? Did he really scream out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Literal. And he will come again, literally. It won't be Casper the ghost coming. It's going to be a literal raised Jesus, a physical Jesus coming. He will come literally. I want to say this. Get off the tangent maybe, but I want to uh, say this. There must be a millennium in order that God keeps his promises, rewards his people, he said he would, and that all the biblical covenants will be kept, that he'll keep every one of them. But when we talk about God's kingdom, it's a complex term. When we talk about the kingdom of God, there's books on it, what does it mean? We mean a ruler, a realm, and a reign. Who is the ruler of the kingdom? If there's a kingdom, there's got to be a ruler. What realm is he king over? And then what's his reign? Describe his reign. Now, here's something. Sometimes people say, well, God, Jesus has always been king. Absolutely right. He has. God is king eternal. Let me I type these uh, Psalms 10, 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The Lord sitteth king forever. Wow. Jeremiah 10, 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, an everlasting king. Okay? An everlasting king. What does that mean? God has always been the boss over all of creation. He's king, no doubt. But Christ has three offices, prophet, priest, king. As a prophet, maybe Old Testament and his earthly life. As a priest, he's been interceding for us for over 2,000 years. He's never done his kingly work on the earth. The issue we make is God's been in the heavens as king. When will he bring his administration to the earth? Do you remember what Jesus told us to pray? Pray. When you pray, say, thy kingdom come. How will we know when it comes? Your will will be done on earth as it's being done in heaven. It's not his will being done up there. It's getting it done down here on terra firma. I'm talking theology because it's not too bad for us to think. We need to know that kingdom. What is kingdom? We're not talking about the eternal. We're talking about right down here. Christ will reign from the city of Jerusalem. He, uh, there's so many descriptions of this. We don't have time to look at. I mean, you've got these verses that the lion and the lamb will lay down together. That a child can play over the hole of an asp and poisonous serpents, and they will be poisonous in the millennium. The desert will bloom. Uh, the earth may be flattened. Remember in the tribulation, he flattens the mountains. He removes the islands. 
So all of this is going on. And so this kingdom is going to be amazing to have the righteous reign of Christ. He rules over the rod of iron. Justice will be everywhere. Marvelous. Uh, Everybody gets long life. Even unbelievers get to live for 100 years at least. All the saints uh, that are still in a physical body get to live the whole period, be changed at the end of it. The rest of us will be in resurrected bodies. Now he said the saints get to reign with him, but to get to reign with him, he's first got to raise us. And there's, in the first resurrection, he says here, he raises these people. And uh, notice when I, right here, we pick up verse, uh, I'll pick up verse 4. I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, the unsaved, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So before the reign of Christ, he raises everybody from Abraham to Adam. All Old Testament saints will be raised. The church saints have been raised and translated. All the tribulation saints will be raised. And guess what he's going to do with them? He's going to give them a physical body, a resurrected body, and he says, you get to reign with me. You get to sit on the throne with me. I'm going to use you to judge the nations. Did you know you folks are all going to be in the judging business someday? Just what you wanted. Look, look at a few verses. Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6. How many of you have ever, ever heard that wonderful life's verse? Judge not that you... Oh, every unbeliever's favorite verse. Who are you telling me that's wrong? You can't judge me. I didn't. God said it was wrong. I believe his word. I'm not the judge. I'm just telling you what the judge said. If God calls it sin, I get to call it sin. If God says it's wrong, and, and some people got this stupid notion, you just, no, no, I, I don't judge. Oh, you're what the Hebrew word says, you are a dumb, gullible fool. Every crook wants to do business with you. It's, it's used in, in the book. It's translating Proverbs, naive, but it means gullible, wide open to believe anything. But listen to what he says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you go out and get a lawyer if you and your brother can't get along over something? Or do we just stick our head in the sand and say, well, the church is not competent, watch. Or do you not know that the saints will judge? I can't hear you. you. The saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? You don't run down to court 
They just, they just had an immoral brother in chapter 5 that nobody had the gumption to put out of the church. He says, aren't you competent to solve grievances? You're going to be judges with me someday over the nations. And then I love this other passage where Peter is saying, it's kind of rough to follow you, Jesus. You lose a lot of friends. Listen to Matthew 19. Turn there. Matthew 19. Jesus telling this young man that he inquired how to be saved, and he said, sell all your possessions, because he knew what his true God was. It was money and things. So he put his finger on it. And then in verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, physical camel, little needle, it's not some gate in the wall, literally a needle, sewing needle, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they said, well, who in the world could be saved? I don't know why they said that. None of them had that problem. Except Matthew, he'd been a good tax cheater. But then notice Peter. Then Peter replied, see, we've left everything. Peter, did you? What was it? A boat? A net? And a house that none of us would buy? I mean, relative, but we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, in the millennium, when the Son of Man will sit on, the glo- glo- on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. When has that happened? And what will you be doing on them? Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everybody has left houses, brothers, sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You heard the offering plea today. You won't ever give up anything for God that he won't make it up to you a hundredfold. No. Am I preaching name it, claim it? I'm preaching Bible. That's what he said. He's never blessed the stingy except to save them. But it's totally illogical to be a stingy Christian. You've received the God who is generous in grace, and now he's taught me to be stingy in grace. He's saying that if you follow me, Peter, I'm going to make it up to you, and I'm going to let you reign with me. I'm going to share my throne with you, because guess what? Peter then will be over Israel, the bride of Christ. We become the wife of Christ in the kingdom. We share the throne with him. And he's going to put down all of his enemies, according to 1 Corinthians 15, and when he's abolished all of them, put them under his foot, he's going to take the thousand-year reign and just turn over the kingdom to his father, and then for all eternity, it'll be the eternal kingdom. We won't need the thousand-year reign anymore. But you and I, I ask this question of you. Do you have hope today? Hope is the expectation of future good. 
Let's ask some questions. Do you have hope for America? Well, I have a lot of doubts. I'm concerned about this nation. I'm concerned that so many children don't have their father. I'm concerned that many are not safe on our streets. And I'm concerned that old men are turning our daughters into whores on the streets. 40-year-old pimps are selling 14-year-old bodies in the land of the free. That drugs is killing a nation and killing the productive years. That many of us that have got gray hair can turn into materialists. I've got mine. I'm not interested in the next generation. Who is? I'm concerned about my hope cannot be in America. I have hope that God could do something for us, but as a nation of itself. No, but let me tell you what you've got. I don't know if you're here as a Christian or not. You remember what he told Nicodemus? Nicodemus, if you would see the kingdom of God that I'm going to bring, you must be born again. If you would receive me, the king who is before you, the savior before you, I'll see to it that you see the kingdom of God. He said in Colossians 1.15 that when he saved you, and I think of this going back all the years, that the moment you received Christ, Colossians 1.15 says, you were once in the kingdom of darkness, Satan, and in a moment, in a moment, he translated you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, and made you an heir, a joint heir, a family of priests, and a future ruler with Christ. That's what you got just by receiving Jesus. Now, before I was saved, back in the dark ages, I was fearing Russia. I was fearing nuclear warfare. I was scared to death. But that Tuesday night after that prayer time on 15th and Cutting, next to the Golden Rule Market, when I got up from that altar, I could tell you some things that became a part of my future. I'm going to be raptured for one thing. Two, I'm going to be resurrected. Three, I'm going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. And I'm going to be shouting for eternity. That's my future. That's my future. I, I want you to go out and take enough drugs to give you those R's. Rapture. Not rupture. Rapture. Resurrection. Reigning. Rejoicing for eternity. I got all of that by just simply saying, Lord Jesus, I need you. I have no hope. I have no future. And I'm not worried about if you're going to keep your promise to Israel. You can't lie. Abraham, in that day, you will look to God and say, you've done everything you promised me after I left Ur. Everything you promised me in Genesis 12 and told a Bedouin wanderer, uh, came just a moon-worshiping man that you're going to start a nation. God, let me tell you, Abraham, what is it? You've done everything you promised. David, it's your turn. According to Ezekiel, God's going to make David a prince during the thousand-year reign. David is going to be treated like a prince during the thousand-year reign. 
I know you wouldn't, you wouldn't let him pass through this church. He's too big a sinner. But Jesus is going to make him a prince. Get, what is he going to do with you? He, you might be over ten cities, five cities. If I just get to sit on the throne with him and call him husband, that'd be enough. Huh? I hang out with the king. I sit with the king. I sit on the throne with him. You remember in Revelation 3.21, he said to the church, if you overcome and do what I say, as I sat down on my father's throne after I was raised from the dead, in the future I'm going to let you sit with me on my throne. Did you know you're going to be a throne sitter during the kingdom? I'm going to let you sit on my throne. Now, he's never set it up. Matter of fact, the Antichrist comes against Jerusalem and all the saints there thinks he can pull it off. He cannot. I wish we believed this stuff. Wow. Just think every morning, all those R's are in place. I, I, I got a headache. My mother's coming. I mean, my mother-in-law. Uh, I better let my mother come. Bills are due. Body's aching. I'm going to be raptured. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going to be reigning. And I'm going to be rejoicing forever. That's my future. That's your future. And stand. Be my breath. Be my voice. Be my everything. If you're here without Christ, every week I invite people to be saved. I'm not real good at it. I just ask you to come. I'm not Billy Graham. But I'm counting on the God of Billy Graham to convince you to come. When will you be born again? If you're not born again, you need Christ. Going to church won't put you in this party. It's being born. Nicodemus was a religious Jewish rabbi, Pharisee, but he needed to be born again. He said, oh, Nicodemus, your religion won't get you there. You'll have to have the king in your heart, Christ. Why don't you receive him? If you're receiving, you'll be on the, uh, the raining day. I wish we knew the song. I wish you could see it. The Spears family used to sing a song, Here Comes the Bride. What is going to be like when we march down the streets of glory? He said, I'm married to the king. This is my husband. I was engaged to him for over 2,000 years. But we've already thrown the very shepherd of the lion. And guess what? Where he goes, I go. I'm with him forever. Can you believe a hell-deserving rascal can have that future? I do. I'm one of them. God, we thank you for the future you've let us know. The last chord in history is going to be reigning with Christ forever. Thank you for the truth. Let us not complicate what you've made plain. Help us not to be buried in depression and despair because the times are changing. May our hope be anchored in Christ in the heavenlies. In Jesus' name, amen. Tell someone about Jesus before it's too late. You're God's witness. You're God's witness.